Hello, everybody, and welcome to All My Movies, the show where I grab a movie off the shelf and talk about it. Some of these are movies that I haven't seen in years that I don't really remember, but this week's movie is a movie that I watch every year. As a matter of fact, I watched it a little bit earlier this year because it is a Christmas Eve tradition in my family. We're talking about 1989's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which was written by the director that we talked about last week, John Hughes, based off of a short story that he wrote and was published in the National Lampoon magazine. And it, of course, stars Chevy Chase as Clark Griswold. This was the third film in the Vacation series. And one thing that I forgot about Christmas Vacation until I was doing some research this week is that I knew that it was successful, but I did not realize that it was the most successful domestic film of all of the vacation movies. And I think there's a reason for that. I think that there is a relatability to this movie that you don't necessarily have in the other vacation films. As a matter of fact, I relate to this movie quite a bit. We'll talk about my own personal Clark Griswold-isms, uh, but let's start at the beginning with the origins of this film, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. As I mentioned, it is based off of a short story that was written by John Hughes called Christmas 59, and I read that story in preparation for this show, and I have to say that, it, it, first of all, it has a lot of the elements that you see in the movie, the feuding in-laws, it does have the electrocuted pet, it has the arguing over the parking spot outside, it has the sort of dotty older aunt, uh, but it also has a, a character that, well, let's just say it makes Long Duck Dong look progressive, by today's standards. So uh, Christmas 59, if you do choose to read it, might surprise you in ways that you didn't expect, but it is a very loose structure. However, John Hughes said in many interviews that uh, when he was asked to come back to do a third vacation film, he only agreed to do so because he already had the short story on which he could base a new adventure of Clark Griswold and his family, this time not leaving home, but deciding to have a good old-fashioned family Christmas in their own house. What could go wrong? As it turns out, everything. No, no, we're all in this together. This is a full-blown four-alarm holiday emergency here. One big what-if scenario when you're looking at the history of Christmas Vacation involves who ended up in the director's chair. Now, Jeremiah Chechik was eventually the director of the film. He was a first-time feature director who came from the world of music videos. But there was another filmmaker that was in talks before the film began, and that was Chris Columbus, who apparently, according to an, an oral history that was compiled by John Hughes' son James about Christmas Vacation, said that he was in heavy negotiations to direct the film, as a matter of fact, did do some of the second unit shots, some of the shots that were done in Chicago, uh, but that he had a meeting with Chevy Chase that went very poorly, and then a second meeting with Chevy Chase that went even worse, and he said to John Hughes, uh, and this is, I'll use his exact words, there's no way I can do this movie, I know I need to work, but I can't do it with this guy. So, John Hughes and Chevy Chase, not fast friends, and if you read about Chevy Chase, um, he was not fast friends with a lot of people to this day, so a little bit of a clash of personalities there. However, it did end up working in Chris Columbus's favor because very shortly thereafter, John Hughes had delivered to him a script for another idea that he was working on, which became the next year's Home Alone, a massive hit, the biggest financial hit uh, to that point, certainly by a long shot. Uh, for John Hughes as a writer, for Chris Columbus as a director. So even though he had a couple of unpleasant dinners with Chevy Chase, it turns out that it worked out in Chris Columbus's favor. 
One thing that always gets me in the holiday spirit right from the beginning is the opening titles of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. It harkens back to an era when, first of all, when movies had opening title sequences, you don't see them very much anymore outside of James Bond films. But here you have a full animated title sequence with Santa getting up into all kinds of hijinks trying to deliver presents to the Griswold household. I wish that more movies would invest the time and money into doing these kinds of title sequences, but I, I guess studios just think that audiences don't have that kind of patience anymore. I think it's a great note, though, to start the movie off. It is fun, it's funny, it's goofy, uh, and it really sets the tone for what's to come. That's how it's done on Christmas vacation. After the main credits, we open up on the Griswold family taking a trip out to the wilderness to pick the Griswold family Christmas tree. And I have to say that the first few minutes of the movie gets off to a little bit of a shaky start for me. I think some of the punchlines are a little bit obvious, and it's relying a little bit too much on Chevy Chase making the funny faces. We're not driving all the way out here so you can get one of those stupid ties with the Santa Clauses on it, are we, Dad? No, I have one of those at home. But once they find the Christmas tree, you first of all get the joke with the Clark forgetting the saw. Uh, but also, I just think the the performance and the writing and execution on the kith and kin joke. Most enduring traditions of the season are best enjoyed in the warm embrace of kith and kin. The three are the symbol of the spirit of the Grithwald family Christmas. That's the kind of stupid humor that floats my boat. One thing that I will give that opening few minutes, however, is another thing that you don't see in a lot of comedies. It's a great stunt. A great car stunt with the station wagon going underneath that semi. That is something that would probably be done with computer effects, if at all, in a studio comedy today. The fact that you had professional stunt drivers execute that kind of thing uh, is pretty crazy uh, for a movie like Christmas Vacation. And again, a sign of the times that there was time and investment that were put into movies basically out of necessity back then that you just don't see nowadays. So as the Griswolds bring their Christmas tree back home, we get the first interaction uh, with their neighbors, Todd and Margot. Where do you think you're going to put a tree that big? Bend over and I'll show you. Last month, we were doing a movie club on my Patreon, and we were talking about Beetlejuice. And there was something that was brought up about uh, the class warfare in that movie, or a commentary on class. And, you know, I'm not, I I was born in 1983, so I I was around for some of this. Obviously, people that are older than me remember it a little bit more. Uh, But this is one of the great cinematic examples of yuppies, which is generally uh, considered to be an 80s thing. Of course, now there's a new word for them. You want to call them hipsters. You want to call them whatever. But the idea of this sort of consumerist class of elites uh, that look down on the everyman, uh, that is definitely what the family in Beetlejuice was. And even more so, these were the suburban yuppies. And why is the carpet all wet, Todd? I don't know, Margot. And I love Nicholas Guest and Julia Louis-Dreyfus in this role because they are absolutely objectively correct to be annoyed by what Clark Griswold is doing to their house. He blasts them with light. He throws the icicle in their window and ruins their stereo. He's loud. He's obnoxious. He's destructive. And yet, due to their own snobbiness, you don't like them, and you root for them to get their comeuppance. This is a recurring theme in a lot of John Hughes's work. As a matter of fact, we talked about it with Dell uh, and and Neil last last week, where you know Dell is objectively annoying, and yet because of Neil, the way he looks down on him, Steve Martin's character, that 
you actually start to root for Dell in the interaction with the car rental agent. You 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 are clapping for the agent because uh, Steve Martin is just so condescending. John Hughes is so great at writing characters like this who are technically in the right but are so repulsive from a personality standpoint that you can't help but root against them. I'm going to take off his clothes, sit in the dark with a glass of wine, and kiss every square inch of your body. After you shower, of course. Of course. Something else that we talked about last week with John Hughes was his time in Chicago at an advertising firm in the corporate world and how much he hated it, how much he didn't feel like this was his true calling and and left to go pursue a job as a screenwriter and a director making his own art and making his own films. And I think you see a little bit of that there, a little bit of that frustration. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, you had the scene sitting in the office with the clueless executive who couldn't make up his mind, indecisive. Uh, Here you have Brian Doyle Murray, a great a-hole boss character. My wife and I came up with a little something special. It's, It's a gift. Put it over there with the others, Greaseball. I think, in in a way, you felt that contempt bleed through a little bit in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. You feel that contempt for corporate America bleed through even more. And I love the part where the boss's minions are all filing past Clark, and he's got choice words for each of them. All right, kiss, kiss my ass. Kiss his ass. Kiss your ass. Happy Hanukkah. Once again, this does kind of give you a preview into the mind of John Hughes. Uh, and, and I think it does show again that he has always felt a much closer connection to the working class, to the people, as he said when it, when we talked about him talking to Roger Ebert about the work ethic in the Midwest, to the people that go out and do a day's work and come home to their families. Uh, you can tell that that's where he holds the most connection because the yuppies and the corporate class are the ones uh, who are snobbish and looking down and the working class guys, at the end of the day, are always the heroes. If you don't want to give bonuses, fine. But when people count on them as part of their salary, oh, what you did is just plain sucks. One criticism that you could lob at Christmas Vacation is that it is a little episodic. And I won't disagree with that. There's one scene in particular that I'm going to point out in a little bit where I think that the movie does kind of stop, even though it's a somewhat funny scene. Uh, This is one that you could say the same thing about, but it is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And it's the scene with Clark in the department store in the lingerie section. It's a bit nipply out. I mean nippy out. I say nipple. Here, I think this is a great example of the other things that he brings to the table. For example, the hysterical laughter, the unstoppable laughter that he breaks into. Can I take something out for you? And then the capper on the scene, and it's just his delivery on it. I don't know why, but it is one of the biggest laughs in the movie every time I watch it. Tis the season to be merry. Well, that's my name. Oh, shit. So then we move on to the what I like to call the home decorating section of the film, where we have a good 20 minutes of Clark getting the lights hung up on his house. And this is where I start to relate to Clark Griswold, first and foremost, because this is the first year that I'm actually going to have a house to put Christmas lights on. And I was talking with Mara, my partner, and she and I were discussing putting lights on the house. And I, Clark Griswold's name came out of my mouth within 10 seconds, because that's the kind of stuff that I would do. Get the lights caught on my leg and trip myself up or stay my sleeve to the roof even though we're not going to be using staples it seems very destructive on a roof surface uh, but these are the kind of dumb things that I do and and I find that as I get older I do them more and more and the attic scene when he goes up to stash the Christmas presents uh, that is one that I 
especially relate to for a couple of reasons. I, I always did relate to it a little bit because at the house that I grew up in, we had an attic very similar to that with the pull ring and the ladder that would fold down. It didn't quite slide down so that it could hit you in the face the same way it did with Clark Griswold. But you pulled it down and folded the ladder down and you would go up. And it was also the same kind of setup. There were some beams uh, over uh, the the top of what was the ceiling in the garage. And we had put down some plywood so that you could walk on it. But there were spots. If you took a wrong step, then uh, you were going to be in a lot of trouble. And I was actually helping my mom move out of that house several years ago. And we had been up and down, in and out of the attic all day. And there was one box left in the back corner of the attic it was dark it was i was we'd been working for 12 hours i was exhausted my mom said just leave it get it tomorrow but of course me the clark griswold that i am decided that no i had to go get that box tonight so i went i got the box and as i was walking out to get to the ladder i missed the step and i put my foot through the ceiling of the garage, which then meant the rest of me went through the ceiling of the garage. Here's a picture of the damage that I inflicted. Uh, yeah, that is, was the garage ceiling. We were supposed to hand the house over the next day, by the way. Luckily, we were able to get that fixed. The visual of this must have been interesting because I somehow caught myself by my elbows on the rafters of the attic. So my butt was hanging out. I, I, was, I was hanging in like a U-shape. My feet and my lower half were holding up my entire body I was dangling eight feet above the garage floor and somehow even though I pulled a lot of muscles in my back doing it I did not fall all the way through to the garage floor so I guess you would call that like a three-quarter Griswold I say that as a three-quarter Griswold uh, but every time I watch this movie I think about that I think about that attic and that ladder and then I think about the time that I literally fell through the attic uh, it actually you know in a worse way than Clark did at this movie at least in this one he just put his feet through uh, my whole body went through the garage ceiling uh, but th this is when I talk about how you see movies different ways as you get older this is something else that I think is really fun you connect to films as you get older in ways that you didn't when you were younger just through your life experience and so that's gone from being just a funny scene in Christmas Vacation to one of the ones that I relate to the most. But there's more going on with that scene, and it's something that I really like, which is that as he's trapped up there uh, before the payoff to the scene, which is the door being pulled out from under him and the great physical moment where he comes tumbling down from the attic. You set up why Clark is so devoted to doing this when he finds the home movies upstairs and he's sitting there and he's watching these films unfold and he's crying. It's actually a very sweet, tender, genuine moment in the film. And I think that it does help sell why he is so committed and dedicated despite the fact that everything is going wrong to having this family Christmas done. It gives Clark a bit of a heart and Clark can be a bit aloof. He could be a bit of an unrelatable goofball character, but I think that scene really grounds the film, and John Hughes has a talent for doing that, for taking these sort of broad, archetypal sketches of characters and grounding them with a lot of heart. He did it with John Candy, and to a certain extent, Steve Martin in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and there's usually 
usually a scene in every film that is just very emotional and very real. Thinking of Kevin McAllister and the old man down the street and Home Alone. So many of John Hughes's movies are grounded by real and genuine emotion. And then you have the comedy beat on top of it. Something that I was actually thinking about that made me feel somewhat old is that he's up there and he finds movies that are dated Christmas 59, which is the name of the short story upon which this is based. Well, this is made in 1989, which means that those were 30-year-old home movies when this movie was made. Well, we're now in 2020, which means that Christmas Vacation was made 31 years ago. So we are as far away from Christmas Vacation, the movie, now as Clark Griswold was from his family home videos when the movie was made. So if you were going to make Christmas Vacation right now, then Clark would be upstairs in the attic watching home movies on VHS. Well, that makes me feel really old. How about you? We'll get right back to breaking down National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, but first, a word from our sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Green Chef. Green Chef is a certified USDA organic company that delivers ready-to-prepare delicious meals right to your door. Green Chef is also the most sustainable meal kit out there, offsetting 100% of its direct carbon emissions and plastic packaging in every box. Plus, there is a diverse selection of recipes with plenty of options every single week. We're right in the middle of the holiday season, and two things that are in pretty short supply right now are time and money. Well, with Green Chef, you can skip the grocery shopping and save a lot of money by reducing your food waste every single week. You don't have to spend that time grocery shopping, and Green Chef can take care of that food planning and food prep that you would have to spend so much of your own valuable time doing. But you don't have to figure out all this stuff by yourself because every Green Chef meal comes with detailed recipes that include instructions, chef tips, photos, and you can get recipes for paleo, keto, and plant-powered diets. Mara and I opened up our Green Chef box this week and it was so amazing to be able to have quality ingredients ready for us. A lot of the times it was less than half an hour from us getting the ingredients out to sitting down and eating. Green Chef is just an amazing way to get Really, really high quality food right to your door, easy to cook. I'm no chef, even I was able to do it, and it is delicious. And Green Chef is offering a special deal for people that are watching the show. Go to greenchef.com slash movies90, that's 9-0, and use the code movies90, 9-0, to get $90 off a Green Chef order, and that includes free shipping. Once again, that is greenchef.com slash movies90. Use the code movies90 to get $90 off, and that includes free shipping. I'd like to thank Green Chef for sponsoring this episode and feeding me. You taught me everything I know about exterior illumination. Following all these hijinks, Clark finally gets the lights on the house working, draining the nuclear capacities of the nearby power plant. Uh, And then the movie kicks into another gear with the introduction of Cousin Eddie, played by Randy Quaid, a returning character to the Vacation franchise. And... I always love how sometimes I'm surprised when he shows up in this film, and Clark obviously is very surprised. (laughs) Surprised, Eddie? (laughs) If I woke up tomorrow with my head sewn to the carpet, I wouldn't be more surprised than I am right now. 
you know, there's always a lot of credit given to Chevy Chase and Randy Quaid and a lot of the other people in this movie, but I think one person who doesn't get the credit they deserve is Beverly D'Angelo. She carries a lot of the comedy in this film, but it's a different kind of comedy. Something I've always thought uh, that is just a perfect delivery is when she looks at Eddie and his wife and says... We have plenty of room. (laughs) I think that's just such a great take on that line because it's equal parts politeness and horror at what is unfolding in front of her. And uh, yes, she doesn't have the broadly comic moments of Chevy Chase, uh, but she also has so many great lines in the movie that by her underplaying it, make them even funnier. Well, I I don't know what to say except it's Christmas and we're all in misery. So as Cousin Eddie and his kids and his dog Snots make themselves at home in the Griswold family house, there is a scene that contains both my favorite joke in the movie and my mom's favorite joke in the movie. My mom's favorite joke in the movie is Cousin Eddie's dicky, which if you don't know what a dicky is, it is a little thing that you put up around your neck that makes it look like you have a sweater on, uh, but it's actually just a little thing that kind of covers your neck and a little bit uh, of your upper shoulder area. Now, normally you wear this under a darker colored shirt so that you have the illusion of wearing a sweater. Of course, Cousin Eddie has a very transparent white shirt, so you can see that he's just wearing a fake sweater. Uh, My mom loves that joke. It is her favorite joke. I actually look forward to that scene because I know how much she's going to laugh at Cousin Eddie's ridiculous dicky. But it is something that, uh, something else in that scene that makes me laugh every time, and that is as he is making small talk with Clark and uh, Clark is watching snots run around the house, uh, Eddie walks up to this little decorative wooden spinning thing and just touches it and just makes it fall apart. It's a crying shame the older kids couldn't make it. I don't know why that makes me laugh so much. I think it's just the brazenness of it. And and it goes to Cousin Eddie's character, which is that he is wantonly destructive. He really doesn't care that he's coming in and inconveniencing you. He is blind uh, to your objection. He is completely aloof. Uh, but at the same time, more than happy to take advantage, to stay for a month, uh, to, to really be an imposition while saying he doesn't want to be an imposition. And all of that is summed up just in that one action. I just think it's just the idea of walking up to something and just breaking it and walking away. Uh, it, it's just, it's brazen, and yet Clark can't really say anything, because if you ever call him on doing anything wrong... He'll explain why you're the one that's crazy, and he's the one that's right. It's it's so frustrating. I, I have such secondhand frustration sometimes with Cousin Eddie and Clark, and yet it's such a funny interaction between those two, and I love Chevy Chase's delivery uh, when he's trying to refill Cousin Eddie's eggnog. Can I refill your eggnog for you? Get you something to eat? Drive you out to the middle of nowhere, leave you for dead? No, I'm doing just fine, Clark. Next up is another little side adventure, and this is one that doesn't necessarily always work for me as much, which is the family trip down to the sledding hill. Now... I'm not saying that this is not a funny scene, uh, particularly the setup to putting the new additive on the bottom of the saucer. And then I think it's great timing with just that flame shot when Clark takes off. Let her rip, hang pen. I just have always thought that it doesn't really pay off. It does feel like the one bit of the movie that's like, well, that could have been a deleted scene, except for the fact that I'm sure it cost a lot of money to produce. It looked like it was a location shoot. So you don't want to leave that kind of money out of the movie. But when I'm looking at the movie as a whole, uh, that's the the scene that kind of exists in a vacuum. Maybe it's just because the Randy Quaid bingo at the end doesn't really read to me. I don't know. 
Bingo. I laugh at the part where Clark uh, shoots down the slope, but then I just kind of wait for it to be over because I don't think it really contributes much to the family story overall. One thing that I've loved about watching these movies with a more, not critical eye, but definitely a more careful eye, taking notes for the show, seeing things that I want to mention, etc., is that more often than not, I notice something new about the movie that I've never noticed before. And this time was no different because I've probably seen this movie 20, 30 times. I couldn't tell you how many times. This was the first time that I noticed that when Clark is looking out the kitchen window and is imagining what his life is going to be once he gets the pool in and then imagines uh, the beautiful girl on the diving board, I didn't realize until this time that it was the girl from the department store. It was the woman who was selling him lingerie that he's imagining at the pool. Maybe I just wasn't looking that closely. Maybe it's because she had kind of a fleeting appearance a while earlier in the film. Uh, It may also be because, and this is a very true story, I have a legitimate difficulty recognizing faces. I have a hard time. There's been people that I've met five or ten times that I legitimately do not recognize as somebody that I have known or have met. I'm sure there's a word for it. It's not, you know, a clinical thing to the point where it stops me from leading my life, Uh, but it is something that I struggle with. So maybe it's just because I have difficulty recognizing people, but I did not know that that was the same woman until this time, a little extra something that I'll notice now every time I watch the movie. From there, we roll into some of my funniest lines in the film, whether it is Clark talking to Eddie's daughter about Christmas presents. Nervous or excited? Shitting bricks. You shouldn't use that word. Sorry. Shitting rocks. Clark trying to find the bright side of the incredibly dry turkey at the family dinner. Oh, it's just a little dry. It's fine. Here's the heart. Or Cousin Eddie's immortal line as Clark is looking out the window on a cold winter's morning to see his cousin emptying his toilet into the sewer. Shitter was full! And of course, we end on the fateful Christmas Eve. Uh, Aunt Bethany's cat, not lucky enough to make it through the entire holiday season. And I found out when I was researching the movie that this is a scene that very nearly didn't make the cut either. This is something that comes straight out of the Christmas 59 story. In the story, it is a dog, not a cat, and it's actually somehow much more graphic than it is in the movie. Uh, But the executives at Warner Brothers were not in favor of this scene being in the film until they tested it with audiences. And as it turns out, for many of the early test audiences, this was apparently the funniest scene according to their test scores in the movie. So they realized that they had no choice but to keep it in. That thing had nine lives. She just spent them all. (laughs) Woo! We also have the untimely demise of the Griswold family Christmas tree, which results in Clark going outside to get a replacement and a squirrel invading the Griswold house. And this leads to the final insult for Clark Griswold on Christmas as he learns that his boss has cut Christmas bonuses and instead enrolled all of the company's employees in a Jelly of the Month Club, which, by the way, leads to one of my favorite line deliveries from Randy Quaid in the entire film. Clark, that's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. It also results in Clark's complete breakdown. And again, when we talk about Chevy Chase, he's not just Pratt Falls and Funny Faces because this tirade that he goes on, first of all, just from an acting standpoint, very difficult to memorize all this. Cheap, lying, no good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood... 
sucking. To keep it at that level, to keep it at that amount of energy, and to get all of these insults and all of these words out. Dog kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat ass, bug eyed, stiff legged, spotty lip. It is a really, really funny performance that doesn't have anything to do with his physical gifts as a comedian and 100% has to do with his gifts as an actor. And if there's one thing where I think that Chevy Chase doesn't get enough credit, it's in that area as an actor. Hallelujah! Holy shit! Where's the Tylenol? Another thing that we talked about last week was the strategic deployment of the F word, most notably in the scene at the car rental counter. And National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation again includes, from John Hughes, one tactical deployment of the F-bomb. We're going to press on and we're going to have the hap, hap, happiest Christmas since Bing Crosby tap dance with Danny The movie ends with some madcap antics when Cousin Eddie kidnaps Clark's boss and brings him to his house, which results in a SWAT raid, but ultimately means that Clark will get his Christmas bonus, the family's going to get their swimming pool, and everyone gathers on the lawn just in time for the payoff of the gas buildup in the sewer to provide some last-minute fireworks. And the rocket's red flare, the bomb's bursting in air. And then we have the last lines of the movie and what I always find to be a really startling smash cut to a the end graphic. I did it. Something that has kind of been lost over the years, perhaps, as Christmas Vacation has become a holiday classic, is that the movie didn't get great reviews when it came out. As a matter of fact, fellow Chicago residents and film critics Siskel and Ebert were not big fans of the latest Griswold family adventure. Other than that, the humor is all of the nerdy-in-law, nerdy-neighbor variety. There's no comic energy in the story. The Griswolds can be funny when they go on vacation but not here when they stay stuck at home. Despite a mixed critical reaction, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation went on to become a big box office hit. It opened over the first weekend of December, where it came in second behind the second week of Back to the Future 2. The next week, it was in second place again behind the opening week of The War of the Roses. And then it came in first place the next two weeks over the Christmas holiday, including beating the opening weekend of Tango and Cash. And from there, it ended up on cable and in video stores for generations of families to enjoy at the holidays. And as I mentioned, this is a movie that we have watched in my house for probably 15 or 20 years right at Christmas time. Usually, we alternate the Christmas Eve movie between Elf and Christmas Vacation. Last year, we put in Home Alone because Mara had never seen it. So we alternated from the plan a little bit, but this is always a staple in our house at the holiday season. And when we look at this Blu-ray copy that I have, it's a pretty bare bones disc. It has a commentary from Beverly D'Angelo and the director of the film and Randy Quaid and a few of the other cast members. And it has the theatrical trailer. That's it. There's there's not much else to this disc. Uh, But one thing that I do appreciate is that it keeps the original cover art, which is the poster for the film. I've seen some other editions of the movie that don't do this, that don't keep the original cover art for the movie. If I could be movie president for one day, and I've said this before, it would be, one of my proclamations would be that home video, Blu-rays, 4Ks, etc., 
have to keep the key art for the movie because nine times out of ten, whatever that comes up out of the Photoshop labs at these other studios and home video departments isn't even close to the original artwork. So I'm glad that I own a version that has the real artwork. If I ever bought an updated version, I'd probably just put it in this box. Uh, it's a good-looking print of the movie. Uh, as I mentioned, very bare bones on the special features, but the movie is the special feature, and it's something that I enjoy popping in every Christmas. It just makes me feel like home. It makes it feel like home and family. It's something that I watched when I visited home for all those years when I lived in California. And now this year, for the first year, I watched it in the home that I now own, that I now share as I build my life with Mara. And I love that now I can think about hanging lights on my own house and falling through my own ceilings instead of someone else's. I'm sure that that's probably not going to be great for the repair bills in the years to come, but it'll be great to start making those memories here. And that's all I have for Christmas Vacation. It really is just kind of a walk down memory lane this week as I go over one of my favorite holiday classics. Next week, we will be talking about another Christmas film, although its status as a holiday film is very much in debate I am very stringent in my belief that it is squarely one of the best Christmas movies of all time. But will you be? Come back next week as we cover this holiday classic. I can't wait to see you then. But until next time, it's time to go back on the show. Thanks for watching. Thank you.